almost every piece of research on B2B businesses today and looking forward over the next decade. It's looking like anywhere from four to 10 times the revenue growth in B2B versus B2C, D2C. So Jason, welcome. It's a great honor to have you in the show today. I want to directly dive in. I looked at your profile on LinkedIn. Uh, I, I saw your story. I'm following you already for a while. And it seems that you have a very international and interesting background. So can you please introduce yourself, um, taking that international part as well? And uh, yeah, also what are you doing for a living? Sure. Well, look, thank you very much for having me on the show. It's really great to be here. I know you guys specialize in a lot of B2B work, which is which is something I specialize in too. So it's great to be part of the podcast. Really, uh, really looking forward to our chat together today. Yeah, look, I've, I've been involved in e-commerce for, for over 20 years. I think I'm coming up on my 23rd year now of, of working in the e-com space. You know, back when I first started out in e-com, everything was difficult in e-com. There was, it was kind of, you know, there was, this was back in the, the OS commerce days and Magento wasn't even, wasn't even a glimmer in anyone's eye yet. You know, there was a lot that basically anything to do with e-com that you wanted to do was really difficult. It was mostly bespoke. It was mostly custom. People didn't really trust the internet uh, in the early days. And, and uh, you know, I was working for an agency in those, in those very earliest days, started my own e-commerce pure play, selling memory cards in New Zealand. You know, we imported them from all around the world and, and we warehoused them locally in Christchurch, which is where I started the business with a business partner. We were shipping products directly to, to, to consumers. So we were like one of those really early D2C plays. And it was really exciting. It grew really fast. You know, we were running all of our own Google ads. And, you know, the, it was a brave new world. The internet was a brave new world. And, and then, you know, things got better. Things got easier. And, and technologies and platforms became the norm. And it became, you know, e-commerce became democratized. And uh, that was a really exciting part of the genesis of the new internet, the the e-commerce world as it emerged, you know, and became a legitimate sales channel over time and people started to trust the internet full stop. It became a, you know, it was a really exciting time to be involved in this industry and I've continued to stay involved. Uh, I've worked for some of the largest brands in, in ANZ and, and uh, you know, I met my wife in New Zealand. She's a Kiwi and we got married a couple of years ago in 2021. Um, my wife and I decided, uh, you know, we decided really what what was the nail in the coffin for us to to leave New Zealand was was COVID. New Zealand um, had some pretty brutal lockdowns, had some of the harshest and longest lockdowns in the entire world. Love to travel. We didn't travel for over three years, and and we just decided, man, we just got to get out of here. And uh, I had been to Mexico multiple times. Love the country. Love the weather. Love the people. The culture. The food. Um, you know, there's lots of natural beauty in this country. And uh, you know, it's an exciting emerging economy that's growing very very fast. So we made a decision. Uh, a few months ago, well, we we actually made our decision a couple of years ago, but but we finally got our temporary residency and went through that whole process to move here. So yeah, we've been here for a few months and we're really really enjoying it. And uh, I'm very lucky, uh, like you, I'm very lucky to work in an industry where we can where we can work from almost anywhere. As long as I've got internet in my laptop, I can do my job and uh, have a consulting business now with e-commerce and focus on B2B and absolutely loving it. Wow. Wow. Yeah. What an intro and yeah, what a story. Uh, I, I loved it so much. And I, I, I've been in New Zealand once in my lifetime as well during our um, early days, uh, uh, during a world trip. And uh, yeah, I, it's a, it's amazing country. This, this, all this experience, not only about B2B e-commerce or about e-commerce in general, but just being in other countries, other cultures. Um, I truly believe that would that that helps you as a to be a better consultant, right? In many aspects. What, what is your point on that? Well, so I guess for me, experiencing the world. I'm a scuba diver. I'm into cars. I'm into motorbikes. I'm into jet skis. I'm into you know I've, I love skydiving. You know I started getting my license for paramotoring. I I just am into lots of different hobbies and interests, and I'm into business and I'm into investing. And I I think for me personally that has enriched my life in a way that gives me both deeper empathy for the challenges that my clients are going through, but it gives me just a greater breadth of understanding of multiple different markets and how they operate and exactly. the, the unique challenges in each of those markets. And so, you know, what works for one person doesn't work for everybody, but I personally have a ton of interests outside of just e pure e-commerce. And, and I think that makes me better at my job. And I think it makes me a better human ultimately at the end of the day. Yeah, exactly. And especially the customers that are, uh, and we will touch upon it um, in, in a second, but the, the customers you're helping that are 
that are having, let's say, an international focus or a multi-country, you know, strategy, they they definitely will um, will 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 have a lot of benefit of that experience. I would I would uh, suppose so. Yeah. So taking a step to your business life, so you you're having a consultancy agency. Um, you have, of course, your podcast channel. Um, a lot of LinkedIn followers, but um, yeah, what do you generally do? And yeah, what type of customers are you serving? Maybe a success story that you can share. Just interesting um, for the listeners what you are doing. Yeah, so I, you know, when I first started out with my consultancy, it was a, it was reasonably broad. I'm a full stack consultant, uh, but you know, I, I call myself, I guess, an e-commerce consultant because it's the thing that everybody understands, like that terminology everybody understands. I, I'm much more of a full stack consultant though when it comes to commerce. I'm a business consultant mm-hmm. and I specialize in commerce. And so, I mean, I consult on on the entire commerce stack, you know, ERP, CRM, CDP, PEM, you know, kind of anything in the commerce stack I've got a lot of experience with and I've, I've usually implemented those technologies as a merchant. So I, I don't just have this theoretical understanding of, of technology and people and process and data. I, I've done these things. And so I think because, it, again, that gives me more empathy for what my clients are going through in terms of change management, digital transformation, all those challenges, what that feels like, what that, what that, what these businesses are actually going through and how difficult it actually is. You know, especially older legacy businesses, I work with a ton of B2B businesses and, and I've really niched down in the B2B space over the last couple of years, mainly because it was blue ocean space. Mm-hmm. And, you know, selfishly speaking, I already had a, quite a lot of experience helping B2B businesses go online to transform their business and make digital a, a significant driver of revenue, you know, self-service e-commerce for their customers to make a much more seamless customer experience for their customers. So I already had quite a lot of experience in that space, but I didn't really realize what a niche that was until I started consulting. And I realized, well, there's actually very few consultants out there that specialize in in B2B in particular. And so whilst I work with a lot of D2C brands too, it's oftentimes D2C brands that want to establish a B2B channel to de-risk their business and to scale their distribution and reach economies of scale and benefit all channels of their business. Uh, or B2B brands that say, well, we actually want to go the other way. We want to establish a D2C channel as well. We want to we want to have a more direct route to our customers. We want to we want to have a more closed loop uh, with our customers to where we can get direct feedback on our products and our services. Uh, we can start collecting customer data so we can remarket to them and we can create cohorts around that and and we can do new product development because we're getting direct feedback from customers. So, you know, I'm seeing brands go both directions. I'm seeing B2B brands establish D2C and D2C establish B2B channels uh, and, and, and hybrids and mixes of those two and sometimes B2G. And so it's a very, very interesting space to work in. But, you know, selfishly, I've really enjoyed working very heavily in the B2B space because there's frankly, there's just a lot less competition also, B2B is a lot more immature. Uh, you know, B2B commerce in particular is a lot more immature. COVID forced a lot of these B2B brands that maybe never had an e-commerce channel historically when their field sales reps couldn't go and see customers anymore. They had to establish digital channels. They had no choice. Their customers expected them to have e-commerce available, whether that be through a, you know, through a punch out, whether that be through direct e-commerce, whether that be through EDI. There's lots of different forms of, of B2B commerce, but, you know, these customers, because they shop via e-commerce in their personal life, they expect their suppliers to also offer e-commerce. But with all the additional features and functions that, that they've come to expect as a buyer in the B2B space. And so uh, this, is, this has become a really, really fun space for me to work in. I've recently added a third episode a week to my podcast dedicated to nothing but B2B commerce because there's just such a dearth you know, there's there's more now. Uh, you know, I think COVID really put a lot of B two B specialists into the spotlight and platforms into the spotlight. Also, technology itself has advanced dramatically, even over the last three years. Uh, the capabilities of major e commerce platforms in the B two B space uh, have Im- improved dramatically. You know, a lot of stuff used to have to be very very bespoke for B two B, but it's it's improved dramatically now. Access to B2B technology is, is better than it has ever been. It is cheaper than it has ever been. And the demand is higher than it's ever been. So really, I feel like uh, kind of 
when we look at the, the data out there in the market from DC 360 and some other, you know, when we look at Forrester and we look at, you know, I'm, I'm not a big fan of, of, of some of these, you know, agencies that, that are putting out this data, even some of the McKinsey data feels like it's like, wow, it's pretty pie in the sky stuff. But when the consensus says across almost every piece of research uh, on B2B businesses today and looking forward over the next decade, it's looking like anywhere from four to 10 times uh, the revenue growth in B2B um, versus B2C, D2C. And so I just, I think it's a massive opportunity and that's why I focused on it so heavily. Yeah, so you're in the right spot. And that's also why I like it a lot. Uh, and we are already, yeah, I think we have more or less the same experience in time that we are yeah, doing, um, um, are in the B2B space. Um, but what, what, yeah, um, the first part when you when, uh, was very interesting or uh, interesting topic about these channels, right? That you say, hey, uh, we see companies that have a D2C and they want to do B2B and the other way around. Um, we also see that. Um, but what I really would like to know from you is, do you see maybe some trends or some shifts where you say, hey, maybe 10 years ago it was more like this and now 10 years later it's more like these kind of cases or is it still like 50-50 or a mixture in your opinion? I mean, it's it's a mixture. It's certainly moved significantly. You know, if I look back even five years ago, B two B e commerce was just not that big of a deal. Of course, the hugest, largest B two B suppliers in the world, the Grangers of the world, etc., they all were very early to to B two B e commerce, and they were very successful at it. And they, a lot of these large brands, they they were and are doing billions of dollars a year in B2B revenues through e-commerce. And so I think there was some very standout leaders in the space, mm-hmm. and they were the case studies, right? You look yeah. at Caterpillar, you look at you look at just some of the biggest companies in the world that were very, very early to B2B e-commerce, but there just wasn't that many of them. And you know, even till today, they estimate, you know, data from out of the United States, which is where probably the cleanest data comes from, in excess of 40% of B2B transactions today are manual, meaning they're yeah. taken by a human being. Now, that is a staggering statistic. It's absolutely yeah. staggering to me that it's 100% manual, that we, that we don't have any automation to that whatsoever. You know, and then the lion's share of automation is EDI. And so that leaves such a massive gap uh, for uh, self-service e-commerce to really boost the productivity and the performance and the scalability of B2B businesses that, that really that's where I think that opportunity lies. And then once, you know, I, I tell these B2B brands, you know, they, they come to me and they say, okay, we've never done e-commerce before. We'd love to establish a D2C channel because we think we'll, we'll make better margin, for example. Mm-hmm. And my advice usually is to them, well, why wouldn't you establish a B2B commerce channel first that you, in a, in a business model you understand with an established customer base that you have a relationship with, you can build up some internal skills, you can build up some internal knowledge and capability around e-commerce. If you go from no e-commerce capability at all as a B2B business to all of a sudden wanting to establish a D2C e-commerce channel, and you're, you not only are going to be jumping into a new channel that you have no experience with, but you're going to be jumping into a completely new business model that you have no experience with. You have no experience with customer uh, service at scale. You have no experience with shipping individual items versus cartons, pallets, and containers. You have no idea about the the complexity of logistics and uh, return, you know, return logistics, reverse logistics. You have no experience with digital marketing and and you have no experience with performance marketing, you have no experience with content. So uh, this is the kind of conversation I'm having pretty routinely is that a lot of these B2B businesses, they want to go whole hog into D2C and they're not even doing B2B e-commerce yet. And so they just don't, they don't have that capability. They don't have that institutional knowledge uh, and they don't have that skill set, and they don't even necessarily have the partners yet, whether that be agency partners, e-commerce, you know, development agency partners or marketing partners, they just don't have any of that infrastructure built up in their business yet. And so my advice typically to these B2B businesses, start with a business model that's familiar, start with, you know, all of the processes that can be effectively converted from your existing analog sales processes to digital equivalence so that it's, you know, it's, 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 I guess it's evolution versus revolution is, is the way that I would put that. 
And so that would be my typical advice for most B2B businesses yeah. out there. Dip your toes in the water in a business you know. No, that, that's a great tip. I was already writing that down. I think I think this is this is happening so often. And just let me let me rephrase it. Uh, because I think this is a key, a key thing is that indeed the B2B businesses and, and yeah, I, I, we see the same kind of thing is that to say, yeah, no, we want to have, you know, they see this big, maybe big dollar signs of say, hey, we can open another channel and so on, but they are missing the opportunity cost, which is most of the time so much larger, but they are not, they are not aware of And That's why I think we are having this podcast uh to 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 give that information uh, you can help already the company in so many ways in automating in reducing manual work um and having yeah i think easier to grab success uh with indeed business processes that they are already familiar with so that's that's a great advice i will definitely um save that one and 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 use it more often so um so that's awesome maybe Touch upon a little bit on the on the on the differences because we talk a lot about that in this podcast, but I always love to hear it from an expert view as well. So, just putting it, you know, next to each other, B two B and B two C. In your opinion, or from your perspective, what are the main differences? Yeah, look, I think B two B e commerce ha- there's a lot in common in the mm-hmm. sense that we want to create a seamless buying experience for the customer, right? And so we want to have personalization. We want to have, you know, we want to have all of the same types of experiences that someone would get through an Amazon or someone would get through their favorite D2C brand or their favorite B2C brand that's a that's a retail aggregator and it's sell a bunch of stuff on a website that we can go direct and we can we can find all that stuff. We have the, you know, we with those retail brands, those typical retail brands, they typically have lots of content, they typically have lots of product information, they have great imagery. They have great videos. They have, you know, spec sheets and details, and um, you know, the the retail experience online is extremely mature. It's not perfect, but it's very mature, and and it's been mature for probably a decade. And so the reality now is the technology is very advanced from a retail e-commerce perspective, and the understanding of having super high quality and super complete and super enriched product data is very well understood. You know, a PIM system, you know, product information management system is now common in retail e-commerce. CDPs are extremely common in retail e-commerce. Personalization, search, merch, all that stuff is very common now in, in B2C, D2C e-commerce. Yeah. CDP and so, customer data, uh, customer data, just, yeah. customer data platform, which yeah, is, which is, yes. okay. yeah, which is kind of, I guess, uh, you know, a marketing automation platform like a Clavio, yeah. but on steroids. Right. Yeah. And it takes data from all your channels and, and allows you to segment in ways that you cannot segment with just a standard marketing automation platform. And, mm-hmm. and so I think that that, that stack is very well known. It's very well understood. It's very mature. And even from a customer service perspective with gorgeous and, you know, just the whole stack is very well known. You know, there's 8,000 or eight and a half thousand apps. I think now in the Shopify app store, uh, that service every single niche piece of functionality you could ever want in a B2C, D2C platform. B2B is less mature. And so uh, what needs to happen now is a lot of these technologies, which were completely orientated towards B2C, D2C now need to refocus or have equivalents built out for the B2B experience. Now, B2B needs to have that same seamless type of customer journey, but it needs to have a whole lot more layered on top of it in addition to all that base functionality that we take for granted today in the e-commerce world as buyers, as consumers. They need to have things like unique price lists. They need to have things like restricted catalogs. Oftentimes in B2B, each customer will have their own range of SKUs that they have access to uniquely uh, that no other customer has access to or, or a, a subset of SKUs. We have things like request a quote uh, or create a quote inside the platform that can either be accepted, declined, or counterquoted. We have things like um, you know sales rep or sales force assisted purchasing where they can effectively create a cart for the customer based on what they know the customer wants and all the customer has to do is log in and authorize that. We have, you know, there there are just, uh, there's MOQs, uh, for example, minimum order quantities, which can be based on tiers, they can be based on brackets, they can be based on lots of different rules. They can be based on MOQ to manufacture, meaning, okay, you have to order this amount before we'll even start the manufacturing process and then we'll manufacture to order once 
collectively across our entire customer base, we have this MOQ hit. Uh, and so you need to be able to show that. You need to be able to show, okay, you're placing an order for 500, but we need to have a total order across all customers of 5,000 before that will trigger this off to be manufactured and sent to you. So, uh, you know, which is, which is oftentimes known as indent in the industry. There is, uh, you know, there, and there's many, many more things that go along with B2B that make it really unique. But the, the B2B buyer of today, the modern B2B customer, expects to be able to have a B2C-like experience, but also have all that additional functionality. They expect to be able to have tiered accounts where you might have a senior buyer, a junior buyer, and then a procurement specialist that signs off on all purchases, right? Whereas in the B2C world, every single customer is their own unique account, right? Whereas, whereas inside of an organization that has very large, it's a very large buying organization, they need to have tiered accounts and they need to be able to have uh, an address book of all of the locations that they might have their orders shipped to. And that needs to be able to be shared organization wide. Um, you know, they need to be able to have different types of payment methods in the B2B world that do not exist in the B2C world. In the B2C world, you always pay for your goods before you receive them. In the B2B world, often you do not. So in other words, you're on account and you might have 30, 60 or 90 or even 120 days worth of credit. And then you might have a credit stop limit that says, okay, when you reach 50,000 in, in credit, then we're going to stop you from purchasing or we're going to have a discussion. So you pay down your account before we allow you to buy again. You know, all that stuff needs to be automated. And so uh, there's oftentimes a tremendous amount of product configuration complexity in the B2B world and also what's called bombs, bill of materials complexity in terms of components that make up a single SKU. And so the, the, the ability for the customer to be able to configure what they're buying oftentimes is much, much more complex in the B2B world than it is in the, in the B2C world. And the amount and type of product data that needs to be provided to the buyer in the B2B world, it's, it's oftentimes, it's, it's a different type of content. It's, a, it's, it's spec sheets, it's, it's PDFs of, of specific data, it's, it's downloads of zip files with content and images that they then need to, to have as collateral to be able to resell that product as a, as a reseller sometimes. So there's, there's just so much that goes on in, in the B2B world that just the, the B2C world never has to think about. And in the B2B world, for and I'll just give you one really prescient example. In the B2C world, price is an attribute of the product. In the B2B world, price is an attribute of the customer. Mm -hmm. And, yeah. and that, that from a data modeling perspective, just that alone adds tremendous complexity to the way that you have to architect and build out an e-commerce site for B2B. So yeah, there's, there's lots going on in the B2B uh, space <laughs> that just does, that the, the B2C world just doesn't even have to think about. But, but conversely, there's a lot of things and a lot of learning that we've got from the B2C, D2C world that I think we should be able to effectively translate into the B2B buying experience, but with all those extra enhancements layered over top of it. Wow. Yeah, no, I, I, I love that summary. When you started talking about it or, or saying, okay, yeah, hey, we want to have more or less the same experience, but this and this and this and this and this. I think that it was one of the greatest summaries I ever um, heard in this show because uh, it was complete. And uh, and this is, I, I would say this is also a great trigger or it should inspire um, uh, companies that say, hey, we want to start with B2B. And do not think, hey, it's just B2C with a little bit of extra this and that, right? So that is the total different approach. Yes, you want to give that same experience, but then the journey starts with all that complexity that is actually the trick to give that, you know, that to make that super simple or super easy experience that we are used to in our everyday, you know, um, interaction with apps and things that we are using as a consumer, but then with all the complexity B2B brings. So yeah, you... The, I, I just was writ, writing along with you with the list of things you were mentioning, but uh, I could not keep up, but I will listen back and, and make the list complete. But I can imagine, uh, and that's another another thing I want to talk about that, yeah, um, it can be overwhelming for, for companies that want to start with that, right? And you as an expert, uh, you, I think you have seen companies struggle a lot. You have seen failures a lot. And it's always what I love to hear from, from, from people like you. So, okay, hey, what... Uh, what are the, the the biggest struggles or failures in 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 B two B e commerce projects and uh, and yeah, what tips can you give? You you already shared one on huh? um, uh, 
on the fact that you can start with, um, uh, with, with the business that you're familiar with. But yeah, if you take that direction, uh, there will be more hurdles, obviously. Yes. Yeah, look, I think for me, one of the biggest challenges that I see in the B2B world when I go into consult is um, the quality, the depth and breadth or lack thereof of product data. So when I say that, I mean that in the B2B world, often the sales reps, the field sales reps, the BDRs, the BDMs, the SDRs, the AEs, they are having a direct one-to-one -one relationship with the customer, right? They, they, sometimes they've gone out and they've secured that customer, and then they, they continue to have a relationship with that customer over a very long period of time. They maybe even bring in special products just for that customer. Um, they, they really have a much deeper relationship, and therefore the uh, LTV of those customers is, is, is much higher. The AOV is typically much higher than in the B2C, D2C world. Um, and the challenge there is that uh, there's a tremendous amount of catalog product knowledge and institutional knowledge inside those B2B businesses that sometimes only exists in their head. Yeah. They've never codified it. They've never turned it into a process. They've never got their product data centralized and enriched in such a way that it can be ex uh, externalized to digital channels seamlessly and easily and cleanly and more importantly, consistently. And so that's one of the biggest challenges I help brands deal with when they starting to think, okay, let's explore these digital channels. Let's explore our own e-commerce website. Let's explore maybe Amazon business or some of these other B2B marketplaces. Let's explore social commerce. Let's explore some of these other digital channels as a B2B business. Well, the first thing we have to do is we have to get their data cleansed. We have to get their data rationalized. We have to get it harmonized and, and consistent. And, and I'll give you an example of some of the things I see just very routinely on almost every single engagement. Mm -hmm. the, the inconsistency between uh, parent and child relationship of product. So where a product is multivariant, yeah. what, I'll, what I'll see sometimes is I'll see in the ERP, because typically with these B2B businesses, they have an ERP and they've got their, their core product data in the ERP. So they'll have the name of the product, they'll have the SKU of the product. They'll have maybe a very short description of the product and maybe the odd product attribute and maybe a PDF you know, download of information about that product. And that might be all that they have. They might have one image of the product and, and then that might be it. Or, or maybe they don't have any images at all of their product. And oftentimes what we'll see is we'll see dramatic inconsistencies in the ERP around the, the product hierarchy. Sometimes we'll see variants that'll all be their own individual SKUs in the ERP. Yep. Sometimes we'll see a linkage between a parent and a child SKU, meaning, okay, here's the parent product and here's all the variants of that product, maybe the, the colors or the sizes or the designs or whatever it might be of that product. Sometimes we'll see products that are well enriched, meaning that they have really detailed product descriptions. Sometimes we'll see virtually either no or a one sentence product description. And then we see that there's a blend of brands that understand what is structured versus unstructured product data, and some brands do not. And so there are usually B2B brands will understand structured product data as it relates to product variants. So in other words, if I have to choose as the buyer, as the B2B buyer, if I have to choose, let's say it's, I don't know, let's say I'm an apparel, B2B apparel seller and I'm selling shirts. And uh, like I need to, I know as the buyer, in order to buy the right SKU, I know I have to select the color, I know I have to select the size, and I know I have to, I know I have to select the pattern, for example, in order to get the product that I want, right? And so the B2B seller might understand, well, those product attributes, those are structured product data attributes because we have to have those attributes in our system to know which SKU we need to ship to the customer. But what they don't necessarily understand is all of the other product structured data attributes around that product that maybe don't have to be used to make the buying decision at the SKU level, but inform the buying decision. And for example, would, would be absolutely necessary in a large, let's, let's say the B2B seller has a large catalog of 10,000 plus products. Well, once we go into the digital space and we now have product categorization, they might not even have product categorization in their ERP because it doesn't exist in the ERP. It doesn't need to. But in a digital space, those categories need to exist. That hierarchy needs to exist. And if I go into a, a category as a B2B buyer and it's got 500 products in the category, well, 
there's a whole lot of attributes I would like to be able to apply to that product to narrow it down very quickly to the things I'm actually looking for, right? And so these are the types of conversations I'm having with these merchants because usually nine times out of 10, their product data is, is miles and miles and miles away from being ready for digital channels if they've never sold digitally before. Mm -hmm. Because their salespeople plug all the gaps in that information. They've got all the information. They understand the hierarchy. They understand the attributes. They understand how to describe the product. They understand how to sell the product. Uh, and if the customer has questions and they don't have an immediate answer, they go away and they get the answer. And uh, so these are the types of things that we run into very, very consistently. And the other big challenge is, is customer data. There's often big gaps in customer data that and there's a level of harmonization and, and rationalization that usually needs to take place to be able to sell to customers uh i guess in a consistent way and oftentimes this takes the form of you know these b2b brands oftentimes don't even realize that they've got a unique 100 percent unique price list for every single customer let's say they've got 500 customers in their database they might have 500 price lists because the salespeople have done a deal on one SKU or two SKU or five SKUs mm -hmm. in that price list for that one customer, well, by definition, that means they get a unique price list, right? And so this is, uh, you know, and you can either manage that by exception or you can manage that by inclusion. You can move to pricing tiers based on either, you know, annual spend or volumes or unit sales or what, you know, there's lots of ways you can, you can break this down, but oftentimes there needs to be a rationalization. And oftentimes these, these brands don't realize that even if we could cater for a single price list per customer in an e-commerce platform or where, whatever, that wouldn't necessarily be the best thing for the business because now it makes it very, very difficult when we change prices across our catalog, it makes it very, very difficult for us to forecast the changes in revenue and profitability when now we have to look at the discount that each individual customer gets uh, across a range of SKUs before we can accurately forecast uh, and do business intelligence across our business. And so really, it, it makes the business not only more efficient usually when you move to pricing tiers, but it allows you to um, forecast changes to your business model over time, your product mix, your margins, your pricing, all that stuff, even, even the way in which you price shipping, all that stuff. It, it, ultimately, what that comes down to is you know, kind of your unit profitability, right? And it makes it very, very difficult to do the proper type of analysis and forecasting when every single customer has their own unique price on everything. Yeah. So these are the types of discussions we're having all the time. And a lot of times these businesses don't even realize that's happening. They don't yeah. realize that, that, that they have all this custom negotiation, these trade prices uh, that have been built up over time that they don't even know what's happening in their business. And they go, well, we didn't even know we were doing that. We didn't even know we were discounting that product by 50% for that customer. We had no idea yeah, that that was happening. Yeah, yeah. So that, that's great. So let me digest this a little bit because I think um, you, you mentioned two problem areas and and, and that was great. So one is customer data uh, and then especially, you know, focused around pricing and I, I, one of one of the, you know, ways to mitigate that is to, to think about other models and, and that will in the end also not only help the uh, the e-commerce project, but the business in general. But for product, um, um, had this attribution or maybe missing data, what is there your 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 cure or, or what's your silver bullet there? Is it is it the PIM system or do you solve it in other ways? What do you mostly advise? It depends on their ERP. Some ERPs are a little bit more flexible around yeah. the type of data that they can hold. Uh, if they've got a really um, limited ERP that just is not, just cannot do, cannot hold the, the structured data properties that we need for digital, then we'll yeah. oftentimes recommend a PIM. Yeah. You know, and I, I'm a I'm a RiverSand partner, and and look, I, I partner with a couple of other major PIM systems. Um, th there's there's radical variation in PIM capabilities in the market from yeah. sort of the, the, the less complex, easier to adopt um, PIM systems that are a lot cheaper. Um, there, there's a lot of those out there and even some of those are SaaS nowadays, um, all the way to the more complex PIM systems where you can have all sorts of rules and you can have roll forward and roll back across data edits and you can have you know edit tracking down to the individual user level and um, you know, there's roll up and roll down of data across variants. And there's all sorts of things, I guess, in a PIM system that depending on what the, the merchant needs, 
they may need to go with a more or less complex PIM, PIM system to achieve the business processes that they, that they typically follow internally. But one of the things that a PIM brings to B2B businesses in particular that oftentimes they don't necessarily have is rigor around workflows for product attribution and making sure that that becomes someone in the business's like holistic responsibility to make sure that every single product in the catalog is attributed to at least a minimum standard as a business. Yeah. So maybe the rule is, okay, every single product in the catalog has to have at least one image. It has to be assigned to at least one product category. It has to at least have a product description and it at least has to have the attributes required of it to make a purchase, right? Um, maybe that's the minimum standard. And we put that in as a rule in the PIM system that yeah. this cannot be distributed out to any channel until it's attributed to this level, right? Mm -hmm. And it's enriched to this level. Uh, and then from there, you can have additional enrichment layers, uh, you know, at the, at the, you know, variant level, et cetera, et cetera. And maybe even at the language levels, the localization level for different, you know, markets that you that you sell to and oftentimes there will need to be different types of attributes and different structures of attributes depending on the channel so that it can map to the equivalent attributes in the channel so for example if you sell on ebay you sell on you know amazon business and you you sell on maybe another b2b marketplace each of those platforms will have their own attribute structures that they like to use for their platform. And if you can't one-to-one -one map some existing attributes to their platform, then you need to have your own attribute set for that platform. And that's what a PIM allows you to do. It allows you to create you know, different structures and types of attributes and slice and dice your product data in unique ways, even for your own website, um, so that it's, the data is contextualized by channel. And it makes it very, very easy to do that. Whereas if you're doing that in an ERP, if you're old, solely doing that in your e-commerce platform, because a lot of brands, they'll start out and they'll say, well, we'll just use our e-commerce platform as our PIM. We'll, we'll push the base product data in from our ERP. So we'll push in the SKU, we'll push in the name, we'll push in the short description and maybe one picture. We'll push that in from the ERP and that will get the product you know, basically enabled uh, or, or we'll even push it in disabled in the e-commerce platform. And then what we'll do is we'll upload a CSV of supplementary information into the e-commerce platform for each of those products with all the other additional attributes that we need because our, because our ERP can't handle that additional data structure, but our, but our e-commerce platform can. And sometimes we then can take and we can map out the data out of the e-commerce platform into those other sales channels. And the e-commerce platform becomes a de facto PIM but that usually, from my experience, is a very short-term solution yeah. um, that becomes really hard to manage and maintain over time. Yeah. All right. Uh, now, I definitely agree. That's that's a that, and it's also yeah. I think a great lesson or on to how to mitigate these two these two problem areas. So, but yeah, talking about PIM or talking about um, yeah, we also talked about customer data panel uh, uh, platforms. We talked about ERP. Um, yeah, for very various other guests in the show, eh, we've talked a lot about the importance of, for example, ERP integration or other systems to interact with, uh, especially around real-time data on 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 transactions, pricings, um, um, for for B two B customers. So, what are your thoughts and experience on this? So, is it needed or not? Uh, and how to how to solve this um, struggles you run into? Yeah, I mean, most B2B businesses live in their ERP, you know, yeah. and the uh, reality is, is that their trade pricing usually exists in their ERP, their MOQs exist in the ERP, you know, all of the core experiential stuff, you know, quotes live in an ERP or approved in an ERP, um, you know, the shipping information is, is housed in the ERP, you know, their rates, their carriers, all that stuff is housed in the ERP. And so typically with most B2B projects, it would be pretty rare uh, where you don't have at least some level of, of in system integration between the two of those. It may not need to be, uh, you know, 100% real time. You know, it could, be, it could be on a batch, you know, a daily, daily update scenario where once a day all the orders are brought down from e-commerce into ERP for fulfillment. And, you know, maybe, maybe once or twice a day, the, you know, the inventory and prices are updated. You know, inventory is probably the one, you know, the, the good thing is, is that the e-commerce platform 99% of the time is going to decrement inventory with each sale that it, it achieves. And so inventory updates don't necessarily have to be real time. The closer to real time, the, the less the chance of overselling, you know, if you're selling via field sales as well, you know, and directly in your ERP as well as, is through digital channels, then obviously you want to have, you know, inventory updates as, as frequently as is necessary to prevent overselling via the e-commerce channel. 
But oftentimes, this is probably less of an issue. Overselling is probably less of an issue in the B2B space as it is in the B2C space because oftentimes the manufacturers, the suppliers, the distributors, they, they want to take the order. Uh, they don't ever want to show a product as out of stock. They want to just get the order, and then if they can't fulfill it or it's going to take a week or whatever, then they have the sales rep reach out to the customer and say, hey, we, we, you know, we've got this order from you. you know, it's, it's, we've got inventory on the water, and it's, it's a week away. Are you happy, are you happy to wait? They just, you know, most of my, my B2B merchant customers, they just say, I just want to get the order. I don't, I, don't, I don't want to ever stop an order coming in, and then we'll deal with it through the sales channel. Um, you know, the sales rep channel will deal with any um, downstream impacts of orders that we can't fulfill immediately. Um, whereas in the B2C, D2C space, C, D2C space that inventory is, is and, and not overselling so directly impacts the customer experience that usually you don't ever want to oversell in the B2C, D2C space unless it's a pre-sale or drop type of a scenario. So these are definitely considerations. I think orders, you know, can be on a on a cron job in terms of integration, where they come down to the ERP once an hour or something like that. Don't need to be real time. Um, pricing updates definitely need to be, you know, they need to be several times a day usually. Um, you know, if you're making changes pretty routinely to your pricing, especially customer specific pricing, then then that needs to go up pretty frequently. But none of this stuff, almost, uh, you know, I I don't have a tremendous amount of experience where B two B merchants need everything all the time to be in near real time it just it just doesn't really happen in their space they're just and also the volumes that they're doing in terms of order volumes is usually each individual order tends to have many more line items and many more units on it but the number of orders tends to be much much lower whereas in b2c d2c land you know you can you can be doing thousand orders a day you know, i've worked with lots of b2c d2c brands that are doing one two five ten thousand orders a day and in that environment that starts to become a lot more mission critical in terms of, of near real time updates of, of inventory and price. But uh, in the B2B world, you know, the transaction volumes are lower, typically speaking. And so the whole business moves at a slightly slower pace. And so the, the integration is absolutely mission critical to prevent double handling and manual management of updates going to the e-commerce platform or, or other channels and back to the ERP. Um, so yeah, integration, absolutely mission critical in the B2B space, but not so much real-time integration. Okay. Yeah, that's a great, that's a great addition. And I think, um, I, we, of course, uh, there, there are different business needs and, uh, and it depends per case, but I think it's a, it's a true story what you mentioned. It's moving a little bit at a slower, uh, slower pace, but yeah, definitely also what we, what we see or hear a lot in, uh, with the other people we have here in the show, the manual, the amount of manual work that you can reduce. It's still, yeah, some, it's sometimes kind of funny or yeah, maybe not funny, but if you hear, you know, companies complaining that they are still, you know, managing both systems with by hand, you know, fixing order issues or, or data issues, uh, and you, you can save so much time with, um, um, yeah, with, with what you could say, mission critical integration. Um, yeah, I, I have two more questions at least. Uh, that, and, and th this one is, I, I always love to ask to, to experts like you because I think it's one of the biggest problems uh, we see in, in B2B space is the, is the adoption of this channel, right? You open this B2B online store and then nothing happens, right? So um, uh, I, I think you have, you're familiar with that uh, and you have, uh, you have experience. So, so, so what do you mostly advice to so to b2b companies that are you know that you work together you start a new b2b digital channel you know self-service uh, store uh, but the adoption by the customers is still or or sales is still not there right manual order entry you know it it's still it's not happening what what will you advise what will you do yeah i think I think the easiest way to minimize the chance that this will be an underperforming channel for the business, particularly from an ROI perspective, because it's a it's a significant investment of not just cash but time. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's it's a big investment. Uh, you know, and it takes people away from business as usual yeah. to implement these channels. You know, going through the whole project and development, implementation, integration process, and UAT and everything else. So. I think that one of the ways that I've seen B2B businesses get good traction with customers is to take customers on the journey right from the first discussions internally around mm -hmm. introducing this new channel and starting to talk to customers about that really early on. And then maybe selecting a cohort of five to 10 customers, you know, two, three, four, five, you know, it depends on how big your business is, of course. But, you know, you, you, if you select, you kind of handpick a cohort of, of maybe Half of, half of customers that you think, you know, in that set of five or 10, if you pick some that you think would be really resistant to adopting mm -hmm. e-commerce and some that have already asked 
for e-commerce and you kind of split it down the middle and you say, okay, we need to be able to bring both cohorts on this journey with us and make sure that we're building something that is totally relevant to them as the customer. And you bring them on the journey right from day one where you say, look, we're talking about this internally. It's likely something we're going to do. You know, what are your thoughts about that? What are the reservations you have? Um, you know, what are some key functionalities you think we should absolutely have to have if we, if we go down this route? You know, what are, you know, what are some of the resistances internally from the sales team, whether they believe their job is going to be threatened or that their livelihoods are going to be threatened or their commissions can be threatened, whatever it is. I think you need to start having a dialogue sooner rather than later before you even start scoping out the solution. You need to start having that dialogue and it needs to be really transparent. It needs to be really open. And then I think you need to take them on the whole journey right from the beginning, right from the initial scoping and you maybe some initial prototyping, maybe even a proof of concept. Uh, you know, take the customer through that, take the sales team through that, make sure that they are having all the tooling that they need to make them more efficient and actually enjoy their job more, less administration for them and more focus on customer service and more focus on building a relationship and building out their ability to sell more into those customers and offload the, the you know, replenishment ordering process off to these digital channels. And then also helping the sales team understand and, and helping everybody in the business understand that B2B e-commerce is now also an acquisition channel. So you can, sure, of course, when somebody authenticates to get their own price list, et cetera, uh, but now we can actually showcase our catalog. We can perhaps show pricing. Maybe we don't show pricing, but at least we can show our catalog and we can, or at least we can show a subset of our catalog and show what we're capable of selling. You could also even show the, the highest price that you have across all price lists. And you could kind of have that almost, almost RRP model in the, in the B2C world, but you have your kind of B2B RRP, which is the highest price you would ever charge for a product. And maybe that's the price you show. You could even have the opportunity for someone to create an account through the front end of your website for B2B, but maybe they only have the ability to pay via credit card at checkout until, and then, and then maybe when they create that account and make that first purchase, then that goes into the CRM for the sales team to then reach out to and build a relationship with and give them a customized price list and customized catalog and put them on a credit account to where they have you know uh, 90 days to pay or whatever it is. That becomes a lead generation platform and an acquisition platform for the sales team to, to have more opportunities to acquire new customers. So I think these are the kinds of conversations we need to be having super, super early so that we get we put all of our cards on the table. We put all of our concerns and our reservations on the table, both from the customer perspective and the internal team perspective. And, and then you take them through the journey. And then also when you get into, for example, UAT, you don't just have internal UAT. You have external UAT by the customers themselves. You, you walk them through that process, that initial cohort that you said, okay, we want you to review the designs. We want you to review the functionality, see if you think there's anything we can tweak to make it more relevant to you. you know, and, then, and then you get them on the journey through testing to make sure that when it launches, it's actually going to be working as they expect it to work. Yeah. Then I think for post-live adoption, then it's really up to the sales team to handhold the rest of the customers who haven't been brought on that journey. I think it's really up to them to handhold for the first one or two or three or maybe five orders for them to literally handhold them via Zoom or in person to walk them through that online ordering process from the point of logging in to successful checkout and successful fulfillment. I think that you have to have the buy-in from the sales team because they're the ones that have the relationship with the customer, usually nine times out of 10, it's a sales team. And they have to literally handhold the customer through that adoption process. Otherwise, it's, it's, you're going to have low rates of adoption. And more importantly, you're going to have low rates of stickiness uh, of that channel. They might place one order online, but then they'll just go back to the old way of emailing their sales rep and, oh, here, I've, got a, I've attached a spreadsheet of my order. Please, please put that into the RP and get it on the way. So yeah, that's, that's, that's what I've seen. And that's what I've seen work really, really well. There's always going to be thorny areas. There's always going to be challenges. But I think if you start with the idea of adoption before you even get into scoping, you're going to have a much higher likelihood of achieving it. Wow. Yeah, no, I think it was a great bunch of, of lessons. So I just I was just writing down a couple of things about the usage of cohorts. I think that that is a nice one. Uh, we haven't heard that uh, many times in the show. So that's a great tip. Uh, definitely made a note about that. Um, and indeed also uh, involving sales um, um, and not only um, um, and not, not see this as a, as a threat, but uh, see it as an opportunity also as a lead generator. 
that is um, also not often being uh, managed. Most of the time it's a time saver, but it can also be a lead generator, which is a, which is a cool thing. And last but not least, really take the customer by the hand, you know, by the sales team. They are they are crucial crucial part there. And uh, yeah, the funny thing is with this uh, with all these um, answers you you gave is that it was actually uh, uh, a question from Jairo Garcia. So that was our previous guest. We always pass through a. Uh, a question from uh, from one podcast guest to another one, and uh, Jairo is uh, is um, is an IT um, director of one of our customers at uh, Integri. It's an Australian company, uh, manufacturing company um, in in healthcare. Uh, so uh, yeah, that was you know brought us closer to uh, to New Zealand where we started. There. Okay, still still big difference, a uh, big different distance between Australia and New Zealand, but closer than me uh, than us and and New Zealand. Anyway. Um, yeah, this was awesome, uh, Jason. The the only thing I'm I'm asking from uh, from you, or the last question is 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 do you have a great B two B e commerce related question uh, that you want to ask to our next guest? And we do not know who he who he or she will be, but you you never know. That's the, always the interesting part. So, do you have some some interesting question for our next guest? Absolutely. So, what would be the breakdown, uh, roughly, um, mm -hmm. percentage wise? in your work of B2B customers, merchants, whatever that you come across that would be manufacturers, wholesalers, or distributors? Because they're quite, they're quite different in, yes. in, in their needs. They're quite different in their go-to-market proposition in many respects. And sometimes those, those, you know, those merchants would, would be a combination of those in some respects. Maybe they manufacture some things, but they also distribute another brand's products. So what would be the breakdown between manufacturers, wholesalers, and distributors in the business you work in? Cool. I, I love that question. It's, I think um, and it's definitely something we, uh, depending, of course, a little bit of the guess for uh, what he or she will answer, of course, but uh, I will definitely circle back the, um, uh, the answer uh, that will be given, or you can listen it back. But anyway, Jason, uh, yeah, thank you so much. Um, the amount of... Um, lessons you have shared, but also the great summary or maybe extended version on B2C versus B2B. Uh, I never heard such a complete list. So I definitely, um, uh, I think our listeners will, will benefit from that, uh, including all the, less, uh, the lessons about, you know, the importance of integration. Uh, if or if not, you need to take that real time. Um, adoption, we talked a lot about. Yeah, this was a great show. So uh, appreciate it a lot. Um, yeah, thank you, and and uh, and hopefully speak or see you again. Yeah, absolutely. And if anybody wants to to reach out, or at the very least, uh, you know, I'll I'll just spruik my own podcast. I know you guys have got an awesome podcast, but I run the e-commerce Edge podcast. Uh, we have three episodes a week that we release mentoring moments on a month. Where can they find you? Yep. So they, they just Google the e-commerce Edge podcast, and they'll yep. be able to find the podcast. And yeah, we, we have some great content coming out, not just around B2B, but just in e-commerce in general. And then uh, I spend a tremendous amount of time on LinkedIn and put out content almost every single day there. So they can reach out and connect with me on LinkedIn as well. I have seen that already and that is great content. So yeah, no, definitely join that, uh, that channel. And uh, like I'm doing as well, I always like to listen to your, um, to your episodes as well. And uh, yeah, once again, thank you very much. And, uh, uh, and yeah, we see you online on LinkedIn. Oh,